Trout Lake, January 3rd. A man arrived here today from Mopusco who seemed to me to be crazy. I saw him coming and went to finish my work as quickly as I could. The man seemed to be getting worse. He told them to kill him or he would kill us all. The Indians are terribly frightened. When I told them that we would tie him, they said it was no use as no ropes could hold a cannibal. The proceeding was a journal entry from Scottish fur trapper Francis Beaton, who tells a story of a man succumbing to madness while stationed at a Hudson's Bay outpost in northern Alberta in the winter of 1896. It's one of the first accounts of Wendigo possession on record, but it's far from the last. His journal recounts the transformation of a hunter named Napanin from man to monster, and examines his final days and eventual execution, which you'll find is as strange as the nightmare that led up to it. This is In the Pines, and I'm your host, Shane Twardoon. The word Wendigo translates into the evil that devours mankind. What is that evil? How does it manifest? What part of the myth lies in truth? And what part of it lies in metaphor? And at its root, is it really that different? Some say the Wendigo is an actual monster, one that lives in the remote forests of North America, a huge beast that feasts on human flesh, a creature with supernatural powers emerging from the darkness when it needs to feed torturing and consuming anyone who crosses its path. Some say it's a sickness, a disease that enters the mind, twisting and enslaving it, one that takes control of its host, making it do unthinkable horrors. Some say it's a manifestation of greed, the personification of selfishness, of power corrupting to the absolute, people destroying others for their own gain. Perhaps it's only the perception of this affliction that varies because the end result seems to be the same the utter destruction of others driven by a hunger that only grows the more you feed it. However, none of this analysis mattered to the men stationed in that remote outpost in the winter of 1896. Francis Beaton wasn't dealing with metaphor. He was dealing with a matter of life and death. January 6th. I went to see the sick man today. He is a pitiful looking devil. They had him with about six blankets and he was still nearly freezing. I can do nothing for him. 
January 12th. He looks worse than ever. I gave him a dose of castor oil. He says his heart is freezing. He's always saying that he's going to be a cannibal. The Indians are terribly frightened. He told them two men would arrive from Lesser Slave Lake in a few days. That is, the devil told him so. January 15th. The two men arrived as the crazy Indian said. After they start back, said he, you must look out for me, for I think I shall kill some of you. He wants them to kill him all the time before he gets worse. Wendigo is an Algonquin word, but the myth persists in other North American native cultures. Ojibwe people call it Wendigo. The Cree people have a number of pronunciations, including Witiko, and the Athabascan people of the Pacific Northwest call the creature Wichuge. What is certain to all these tribes, the desire to eat human flesh is incomprehensible unless possessed. We know of other groups around the globe that at one time, this type of behavior was practiced. But to the people who propagate the Wendigo myth, it was seen as the strongest of all social taboos and regarded with horror. Although the pronunciations may differ, the general description of the Wendigo remains constant. According to legend, the Wendigo is a man-eating giant. Some say they grow to the size of trees. Cree folklore says the Wendigo's body makes a noise that sounds like pieces of ice grinding together as they transform from man to monster. Emaciated from constant hunger with long yellow teeth, a warded tongue, and a mange of rotten flesh, the only thing that remains vital are the eyes that glow red in the dark through sunken sockets. Their stench is a distillation of all the death a forest holds in a blinding perfume. They are often said to have the twisted head of half-human, half-stag. It is a relentless hunter possessing supernatural abilities of speed and strength, immune to even the most extreme climates. It can lure its prey with its voice, a lonely wail of abominable power which hypnotizes its victim into a psychotic state. It infects its hosts slowly, tormenting them as it takes possession. This is called Wendigo fever, and slowly drives one mad robbing them of sleep, plaguing their limbs with an unbearable burning sensation, and inflicting them with an unquenchable craving for human flesh and nothing else. Once this craving sets in, it can never be satisfied, and the hosts will remain constantly on the brink of starvation. The days are passed with agony, yet the longer the monster lives, the stronger it becomes. It is said the only way to kill the creature is to decapitate it, or remove its frozen heart, then salt and burn the body to ash, and let the wind scatter the remains to the forest from where it came. English author and supernaturalist Algernon Blackwood wrote a novella in 1910 entitled The Wendigo. The following passage describes an encounter with the creature. Out there, in the heart of the unreclaimed wilderness, they had surely witnessed something crudely and essentially primitive, something that had survived somehow the advance of humanity and had emerged terrifically, betraying a scale of life still monstrous and immature. 
He envisaged it rather as a glimpse into prehistoric ages, when superstitions, gigantic and uncouth, still oppressed the hearts of men, when the forces of nature were still untamed, the powers that may have haunted a primeval universe not yet withdrawn. To this day, he thinks of what he termed years later in a sermon, savage and formidable potencies lurking behind the souls of men, not evil perhaps in themselves, yet indistinctly hostile to humanity as it exists. January 19th. The sick man's father came to see me today. He said his son was getting worse. He said they would have to kill him or he would kill them all. I pity the old man. He was very frightened. January 20th. Francois came here and asked me if I would read some prayers for the sick man. I went with him. I found a great change come over him. He seemed to be getting worse all the time. He does not look like a human being. He seems to be terribly swollen in the body and face. I do not know how this will end. The sight of him is enough to frighten any person. I think it's worth noting that most tribes that propagate the Wendigo myth existed in a centralized part of North America, where winters are cruel and unforgiving. Lakes freeze over. Landscapes are barren wastelands of endless snow yielding no living thing except for frozen, leafless trees. I can only imagine the difficulty of surviving half the year under these conditions. These desolate and dark months would prey on your sanity, and if you were starving, your mind could easily buckle, like Jack Torrance from The Shining, but instead of the Overlook Hotel, it's a small wooden cabin without electricity, shared by ten people. And then imagine, the food runs out. There is one such case on record, and it resulted in the first hanging in Canadian history. Kaki Su Kuchin, also known as Swift Runner, was a Cree hunter who lived with his family of nine in a camp north of Fort Saskatchewan. He was known as intelligent and trustworthy, even garnering a job as a guide for the RCMP. By all accounts, he was an upstanding member of society. That is, until a particularly harsh winter in the late 1870s when he was, as one Cree chief put it, possessed by the Wendigo spirit. We know there was no leaving his small cabin that winter. The nearest supply store was 25 miles away on foot, and with temperatures dipping to minus 50 Celsius, there was no chance in surviving the journey to civilization. In those conditions, exposed skin freezes in minutes. Had he run out of food and lost his mind from hunger? Or was he actually possessed? We may never truly know the catalyst that drove him from model citizen to madman. Swift Runner resorted to killing and eating his entire family, consisting of his wife Charlotte, his mother, brother, and six children. 
Most of their bones were snapped in half so he could feast on the marrow. One can only imagine the horrors that took place in that small cabin where the hulking six-foot-three man, with a face as one policeman called, as ugly and evil-looking as I've ever seen, murdered and feasted on his nine victims, leaving nothing but shards of bone. The mind reels trying to imagine how he did this to his own family. Did he lock the door and turn on them all at once? Was he overcome with a bloodlust or was it something much worse? When he finally arrived at the RCMP camp in the spring, he was both calm and well-fed. After police found the charred remains of his family, they charged him with murder and sentenced him to hang. He claimed the white men had ruined him when they introduced him to whiskey, but it seems clear that there was something much darker at play for him to be able to commit these heinous acts. Some say he had developed a taste for human meat when, years earlier, he had to eat the remains of a deceased hunting partner in order to save himself, but most in the community said he had been possessed by the Wendigo. He was plagued relentlessly by nightmares, claiming he was constantly tormented by the devil. On a freezing winter day in Fort Saskatchewan, Swift Runner was led from his cell to the gallows, where he was sentenced to hang. He walked without fear or remorse. He seemed much more at ease than the crowd that had gathered to watch him die. They were so cold, in fact, they had taken the trap from the gallows in order to make a fire while they waited. The cold had no effect on Swift Runner. He was downright jovial, laughing and talking while being fitted for the noose. Local Indian chiefs were asked to attend the execution, but they refused, declaring that it was done in such a way that they could not oppose it more. Perhaps knowing the method would not extinguish the evil spirit responsible for the crime. As the nervous officers prepared him to hang, he offered to kill himself with a tomahawk in order to save them the trouble. His strange request was denied. He died in the pitch black morning of December 20th, 1879. His body was left swinging until dawn before being cut down and buried. January 21st. Francois came for me last night and I went with him. I told him we ought to take some ropes with us and tie him if we could. The man seemed to be getting worse. He told us to kill him or he would kill us all. The Indians are terribly frightened. When I told them that we would tie him, they said it was no use as no ropes could hold a cannibal. The sound of him was terrible. He was calling like a wild bull. We tied him with the ropes and I told them to get more but they couldn't find any. I went back at three in the morning. The lines were breaking. I asked the Indians what we should do. They said when he got up, he would kill us all. The father of the sick man told his brother he saw they could do nothing for his son. He was getting worse all the time and he was too strong for us. He said that we could do nothing and he could kill us all. The Indian Yakwemi was the only man they thought could kill him. 
They said he was the man that would have to do it, as he was the great medicine man amongst them. The medicine man was looked toward by the people he served as a conduit to the spiritual world. Traditionally, medicine men were known to be so sacred that strangers were not allowed to see them. The term witch doctor was coined by white settlers after seeing medicine men perform feats of complete bafflement that they considered dangerous. It was thought that they were performing evil magic, which of course was not true. Medicine men kept order for generations. It was believed that they were able to communicate with the spiritual world, and this connection with the Creator gave them supernatural knowledge. Their advice and way of teaching were able to harmonize an entire race of people by promoting wellness through the union of mind, body, and spirit. In the early 1900s, there was a medicine man who claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos. He was an OG Cree chief and shaman who eventually died at his own hands after being arrested and escaping from a jail in Deer Lake where he served as a spiritual leader before the imposition of a law was levied on him by a people he had never met before his capture. This brings me to the curious case of Jack Fiddler. Jack Fiddler also known as He Who Stands in the Southern Sky, was born in the 1830s near North Spirit Lake in Northern Ontario to a long line of medicine men. After the death of his father, a powerful shaman named Porcupine Standing Sideways in 1891, Jack became the leader of his clan, looking after 120 people, yet his influence and guidance were utilized by surrounding tribes as well. Stories of his shamanic powers spread quickly, and he became famous for many things, including curing sickness, but he became most well-known for his ability to diagnose, confront, and defeat the Wendigo. Over his lifetime, Jack and his brother Joseph claimed to have killed 14 Wendigos. In 1906, word reached the RCMP that, quote, a band of pagan Indians who have a habit of killing one another whenever one gets delirious through fever or other causes, end quote, were operating outside the letter of the law. On June 15, 1907, the two brothers were arrested in Deer Lake by the Mounted Police. It may have been the first time either of them had ever come into contact with a white man before. They were put on trial for murder and sentenced to hang, although neither would die at the hands of the Crown. Joseph died in the hospital three days before his execution. Jack would escape captivity one afternoon while out for a walk, although instead of fleeing he found a nearby tree and hung himself. He was nearly 80 years old. Jack and his brother Joseph were caught in a totally foreign, unfamiliar legal system, and I can only imagine what it must have been like being prosecuted for a crime you didn't even know you were committing. It was the Crown's first visit and case against the Cree Nation, and represents a conflict of morality and authority when it comes to justice. For the Cree, the threat of the Wendigo was real. If they weren't stopped, the afflicted person often went on killing until they were. 
Jack and his brother Joseph were caught in a totally foreign and unfamiliar legal system, and I can only imagine what it must have been like being prosecuted for a crime you didn't even know you were committing. It was the Crown's first visit and case against the Cree Nation, and represents a conflict of morality and authority when it comes to justice. For the Cree, the threat of the Wendigo was real. If they weren't stopped, the afflicted person often went on killing until they were. In Cree culture, the shaman isn't granted the authority to rule, like a judge in Canadian court. That is to say, they are not responsible for condemning or sentencing someone for their actions. They saw punishment as an extension of the laws of nature that they followed, and the medicine man was the only one with the powers to eradicate certain evil, and only after someone had gone against the laws of nature. Authority was spread throughout all the people. Fiddler would have seen himself, as would everyone he served, as someone doing what was required by him for the sake of his people. He never sentenced anyone to die. It's ironic that we accept a judge as righteous for killing someone for the sake of the people, yet Fiddler is a criminal for doing the same. It's unfair to argue about reality when two people have different definitions of what that word means. It would be tantamount to being sent to your death by a race of aliens for breaking a law you didn't know existed. In any case, if you are in a small encampment in the middle of a long winter, and one of the men with you is in the grips of Wendigo psychosis, and is threatening to kill and eat everyone, and his body was morphing, and the ropes you tied him with were breaking, and he seemed to be growing stronger and more deranged with each passing day, you wouldn't be so quick to judge the only person who was willing to do anything about it. January 21st, the father of the sick man told them, I give him to you to do what you want to do with him. Only he said, I do not want to see them hit him. And he went out. And then his two brothers-in-law got a hold of him, that they would all be killed if he did not strike the cannibal. At last, Yakwimu said, You all want me to do this. I will try and do it. He then took the axe. I went to the door, I seemed terribly frightened. I came back again, and he had already struck him on the head once. He struck him again, and the man was going to rise. Yakwimu said that he would yet get up and that he could not kill him. I told him to try and put him out of his suffering. He hit him again, and the man did not move. Yakwimu now turned round and told them, I have done what you told me to do. They said he knew that they would all have been killed if he had not done it. Whatever road one would take to killing and eating someone is most certainly paved by evil. Whether you look at it from today's medical understanding and attribute that behavior to schizophrenia, an unregulated thyroid, a pituitary disorder, or something else, 
It's something that needs to be stopped by society. We have the ability to capture and lock someone away for the rest of their life now. We can dose someone with heavy drugs and make sure they never act on those impulses again, but 120 years ago, that wasn't the case. Your entire community lived together in a group of huts. There were no locks on the doors, no alarm systems, no 911. Imagine that for a second. And then imagine there was a giant man who lived among you with a bloodlust and a hunger for human flesh. So, on one side of the coin, we have these terrible acts resulting from extreme conditions and mental illness. We are able to understand the motive. But, on the other side, we have something much more mysterious. Much more terrifying. To this day, encounters with unknown creatures continue to roll in by credible sources. People claim to have run into huge monsters walking on two feet. Their descriptions vary, but what remains is that almost all of them wish they had never seen what they did. It changes them. In some cases, it ruins them. Hunters, truck drivers, park rangers, and members of law enforcement all risk their reputation by coming forward to tell their story. People have quit their jobs or moved their families after running into something in the woods that terrified them so bad they didn't know what else to do. Men and women who spend their entire lives outdoors suddenly refuse to return. Each year, upwards of 2,000 people go missing in national parks. On average, in North America, there are less than three fatalities from bears annually, and cougars account for one death every 10 years. Maybe there is something else out there. Something above us on the food chain. Something at home in the darkness. Waiting. Pines.